really is uh, impossible to um, to go through this experientially, the whole sutta in, in a day, um, and give you experiential access to it. So I wanted to spend more time on the the 16 steps. But one thing I want to say, and I said it a little bit, I think, at the beginning of this day, is that mindfulness, people are loving mindfulness, because mindfulness is, is so useful for... Um, gathering yourself up and allowing you to be present with the flow of your experience. So everything would improve if you become mindful. But the Buddha wanted us to develop mindfulness and then point it in certain directions. Like Galileo took the telescope and pointed it at the stars. The Buddha wanted us to develop this profound mindfulness and then point it in specific areas. And it's not necessarily the areas people would take mindfulness practice. So as mindfulness is sort of sweeping through, secular mindfulness is, I don't know if it's sweeping through, but it's much more available throughout um, the developed world than it used to be. Um, people aren't necessarily using it as the Buddha intended. The first part is great for everybody, just to calm down, calm your nervous system down, become more present. But not everybody is then taking it in the classical directions. And so what you have here in the Anapanasati Sutta is you have these 16 steps. The first 12 develop samadhi, you could say. The next four are looking at classical insights, investigating impermanence and dispassion, the cessation, and then this, uh, the, the release of this urge to cling and um, have a permanent self. So you take that, that development, and then <clears throat> you take these 16 steps and the fact that you've, you've progressed to the point where you have um, insights into impermanence and you actually know how to use your breath, calm down, gather yourself. And then you take this anapanasati into the four foundations of mindfulness, which is its own sutta, um, the, the detailed version of it. Um, and that's worth its own study in, in detail. But what you do when you do the four foundations of mindfulness is you, you go through the stream of your experience and you bring more attention to places we ordinarily identify and cling to and seek for uh, happiness and security in places that we can't actually um, truly find security and happiness. Um, but we keep trying. And so he takes the power of mindfulness of breathing then uses that as a basis to go through the four foundations of mindfulness. And that, that's what's coming up in the, in the next part of the sutta. And the way you do that is you actually go back through the 16 steps and see the four foundations at, in each of the, um, the areas of Anapanasati. So I'll show you what that looks like. So we have these 16 steps, four for the body, four for mental activity, four for um, beautiful qualities of mind, and four for insights. How many of you know the four foundations enough to say, like, yeah, I kind of, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. So how to use the 16 steps of the Anapanasati structure to investigate the four foundations of mindfulness? <laughs> okay, here we go. So the four foundations of mindfulness are body, something called Vedana. And Vedana is whether the, the experience you're having 
has the quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's called this Pali word, Vedana. So it's just, as you taste something, is it neutral? You taste it slightly positive, very positive, very pleasant. Or is it unpleasant? Is there anything painful about it? So it's this entire range of pleasure and pain. That's called Vedana. That's the second foundation. We become mindful of Vedana because it's where we do our craving, clinging, rejecting, strategizing in terms of Vedana. It has a very powerful, plays a powerful role in Buddhist psychology. V-E-D-A-N-A. The third foundation of mindfulness is getting much more um, intimate with the realm of the heart and the mind, like we did in the qualities of mind. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is looking at all these systems that create our suffering or break apart our patterns of suffering and, and allow us to be liberated. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness is called dhammas. And dhamma is a, is a system or a law or a process. So we're, get, we're galloping. Don't worry if, if this is not sticking. We're kind of like going through a lot of material really fast. But there are these four places that we take mindfulness, we develop it, then we go into these four places because the, this is where we're not. This is where we're confused. And so, if you can develop mindfulness and insight into these areas of having a body, of the fact that all experience is flavored with being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that we have this mind and heart with their vast um, spectrum of experiences of uh, pleasure and sadness and grief and happiness and joy and patience and loyalty and generosity, this heart and mind is this incredible array of, um, of valences to the heart and mind. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness are all the ways that we get caught and on the study of how we get free, the study of getting caught and the study of getting free. So you all know better than you used to, um, I'm hoping, <laughs> about certain habits. Like uh, I used to eat a lot of candy bars when I was young, and I don't now. I never had to not do it. I just don't do it anymore. They, they don't attract me anymore, the ones that used to really make me go crazy. But I can walk right by them now. They don't. So I've let that go because wisdom has grown to the place where like, it's not even interesting. So as I've grown, I've grown wiser. Um, you all, you are hopefully all more wise than you were. And that's really your own learning from your own life has helped you suffer less. And that's what the fourth foundation of mindfulness, really, we begin to study what's, what's actually causing our suffering and what actually relieves that suffering, what's actually worth investing in. Okay, so we just gallop through the four foundations of mindfulness. <laughs> So we've already developed these 16 steps in the Anapanasati, and you've done that. And you actually don't then have to do a whole different study because we are already in the neighborhood of the body in the first four steps of the um, Anapanasati structure. We've already come into the body, we've learned to calm, we've learned to be aware of it, we've learned to calm it down, we've learned to be aware of the breath. So we've actually opened up a very intimate relationship of the body already. And that's the first foundation of the four for liberating the, the use of mindfulness for liberation. In terms of mental activity, when you know most of your mental activity 
If you study this closely, you'll find that on some level, all of the compulsive mental activity is really trying to maximize your pleasure or minimize your pain. All the futures I want to live, all the pasts that I relive and try to work out and sweat over or enjoy, a lot of it is either boldface trying to manage my Vedana or a very sophisticated end run around. It's like, you know, if I get really well known, then I can do this and that will get me pleasure over there. You know, I can, the self strategies trying to navigate my well being are still oriented around pleasure and pain. So when you start looking at what's really driving mental activity and what it means to calm down mental activity, you're actually already working in the field of Vedana. This link for me is the least intuitive, um, but it's classically in there. And what I've discovered over time, mental activity is still driven by this Vedana quality. So if you've worked with calming down mental activity, you've already been in the field of maturing your relationship to Vedana, like having to sit and calm down your mental activity even when there's body pain. You're already in the realm of uncoupling the Vedana of the experience and your happiness and contentment. If that one didn't really link for you, <laughs> don't worry, because that, that's the least intuitive one. I'm just showing you where it is in this particular structure. Qualities of mind, we've already done the third foundation of mindfulness by knowing the realm of the mind and learning how to improve it. We've already put mindfulness into the realm of the heart and the mind, and then use that intimacy to guide us into more delight, more gladdening, more happiness. Um, we've already been in the realm of the mind knowing it and working on it um, to improve it, to give it more balance, more levity, more lightness, more, uh, you know, less exhaustion. We've already been in the realm of the mind um, and working on it. And that comes through in this, uh, the third group of four. And then the four insights of the Anapanasati structure are used to deepen our understanding of these dharmic laws. Because we don't understand impermanence, we set ourselves up for frustration whenever an impermanence really kicks in, looking for security and finding that there's a letdown at some point when things are impermanent. So in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Dhamma is, this, this word Dhamma is, is the realm at where our suffering comes from and how to practice and train and wake up so that we suffer less. We've already been doing that by developing the insights um, that came earlier in the day. So <laughs> it was a gallop, I, I admit it, and um, I'm not sure if you can track that, but the detail of the Four Foundations is found in a totally different and highly detailed sutta called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. But they come up here classically, this is how they are linked. And how you take this, these 16 steps, develop them, and then use them further to go into places where we have confusion and where we uh, get lost and generate um, attachment and then suffer the, the consequences realms of the body and the realms of pleasure 
you're not really understanding the mind and getting confused, and then not understanding where, where our deepest happiness actually comes from and where our suffering is actually coming from. One thing that I've been um, really interested in recently is um, the experience of conflict in myself and people close to me. And <clears throat> I'm really studying this word, the, the dhammas, of how I go from enjoying life to being very preoccupied by some type of conflict and how that conflict has gotten into my, inside me and caused so much discontent. So I've been studying it. And it's always easier to see in other people than in yourself because if, if you're in it, you're confused. You know, if you're really suffering, you're in it, it's hard to see it. Even though you have much more intimacy with it, you're so agitated, it's hard to see. But I've watched people around me um, get triggered by their environment and then hostily blame that trigger for the entirety of what they're feeling. So something said, because person A said something to person B, person B completely blames all of their suffering on person A. But all person A did was sort of glance across the, this um, suffering waiting to happen in person B. The, the Buddha was attacked by people and didn't suffer them. Whereas somebody in my family only has to slightly glance across <laughs> old family patterns and I, am, I, am, I, I have to do so much work. And then I get frustrated with them for triggering me and I try to manage my triggers. But really it's this, you know, 98, 99% of it is really this and reality is triggering it. And so this is the study of the dhammas. Like, where's the suffering really coming from? Did it really come completely from the outside world? Or did the outside world kick up something internal? That's, that, it takes a lot to see that truth in yourself. You can see it in others first. <laughs> but then eventually you see it in yourself. That um, we're reacting strongly because of how we're constructed internally, but we're usually trying to manage the outside world to keep us from having to experience that, whatever that pattern is inside. That's the realm of this uh, blue word here, Dhamma, is really, really knowing where suffering comes from and then working productively on your suffering patterns, not unproductively and trying to micromanage the world for not triggering you. There's that famous saying, you could put leather all over the world or just on the bottom of your feet, which is easier. So, any questions about this? Let's just let some pressure out in case people want to ask something. Um, it just seems to me like the breath practice sort of fell out of the discussion here in the last part. I mean, is it just an assumption that the breath practice as, as one goes through these 
is, is always there or is always the safe or the stable place to go and we don't really need to you know discuss how that would yeah and so the the breath the breath practice um, I think early on it might feel like they're two different things and it's probably it's probably okay to, to realize that I'm practicing breath practice over here and now I'm arguing with my family members over here. I don't necessarily see how they're related. Except that if I can actually remember my breath while I'm arguing over here, I get back in my body and then I, so I think, okay, well, this actually is helpful. But still, I'm training with breath over here and I'm looking at suffering over here. And what happens, it's almost like a inverse zipper where, well, I guess it's a, a they start different and they, they get zipped together where um, the breath and being present become more integrated in a way that I never knew was possible. And so I used to say it is not physically, it is not possible to be mindful and speak at the same time. I can be mindful, but as soon as I actually start composing words, I get so taken up in what I'm trying to say, and is that person understanding me, and that I hear their response, that it's only afterwards that I recover any sense of real-time awareness. It's like, that, that's not possible. So at one point, mindfulness practice and speaking were two different things. And now, luckily, mindfulness practice and speaking are a united experience, mostly. Um, so breath practice, as it develops, it integrates. And then the way you use breath, either as a support or as a as a um, more primary experience, you know, going to the breath and kind of letting the rest of the world dissipate some, or I'm using breath as a support for why I'm engaged, how I'm engaging. Breath actually ends up being supportive for all of it. So even if I'm looking at um, impermanence or the nature of conflict or all these things. Um, if I'm not feeling my breath and I'm not feeling my body, I'm usually pr lost. I'm not making, um, it's not very productive. And as soon as I can feel my body again, I usually gain a lot more useful perspective. And so in that way, to do any of this skillfully, the breath has to be fairly nearby. At least the body has to be nearby. Otherwise, you're probably not um, going to integrate what you're learning. And that's taken me a long time to realize that. So for a long time I was learning a lot, but body awareness and breath awareness and wisdom practices were not the same thing. They had a little bit of an overlap. And over time the, the two circles have come over and um, I have to be somewhat connected to my body or I'm just not being that productive in what I'm doing. What is that that made you go to Southeast Asia and become a monk? Free food. What, what made you to go to Southeast Asia and uh, become a monk? What led you to? Um, I got tired of the practice wearing off. And so um, I went on two three-month meditation retreats and the practice wore off. And I, I was kind of heartbroken. And I said, I want to live a life 
that feels like I just got off retreat. But the only way to do that is to be very near retreats or to have a life where there's a lot more practice. And so as a personal decision, um, I wanted to live in a monastery but do some type of service lifestyle in a hospice ward or a homeless shelter or something like that. But I wanted to make sure that I was always feeling how I felt on retreat. And so I didn't want to be that far from it. And the only life I knew how to do that at that time was to ordain. And luckily the practice integrates over time that you don't need the specific conditions of a monastery or a retreat center. And I didn't have faith at the time that that could have come about. So at the time I thought I had to live in a monastic or, or retreat style lifestyle. But I'm pretty sure that over time with faith, uh, I, I could have lived a, a lay life here in the States and develop those qualities. So we're going to do another gallop. <laughs> Let's see if the teacup is so full. You're just like, stop. But just to be, just to give some, uh, I don't know, some loyalty to the sitta, just to show you its structure. And if you ever, as you return to it later, if you want to read through it, it's just good to have been exposed to it at least. And so as you read the Satipatthana Sutta structure, you're going to get the prologue about the Buddha sitting with all these accomplished people who are practicing and him taking delight in that and then going into the, the substance of the sutta, which is, begins with the 16 steps. How to use these 16 steps in coordination with the four foundations of mindfulness. So you'll run into that. And the last thing is that the, the sutta does, it goes through these seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment, um, it's just interesting. Most of us have had epiphanies, but most of us have been so excited about them that we haven't stopped to really like, what is an epiphany? <laughs> what is happening now? Oh yes, I see, I solved world hunger, but I'm more curious about the quality of heart and mind that has solved world hunger than the actual plan. So not many of us have done that. One of the great things about a Buddha is that he's had the capacity to actually study what these epiphanies, what brings them about. And so there are these seven qualities of heart and mind that when you take interest in them and cultivate them, make you uh, epiphany prone. <laughs> <laughs> and so these seven factors of awakening, they're done right in the stream of awareness of breathing, or right in the stream of mindfulness of hearing. So while you're in that realm of mindfulness, you can be welcoming these factors and seeing if they can um, contribute to your practice of mindfulness. So these seven factors, the first one is mindfulness. And mindfulness is this um, growing capacity to be intimate with your present experience. At least that's how I language it. And so less preoccupied, less scattered, more intimate while things are happening. And then you can even finally be mindful of being scattered. It's just harder. But your 
present while you're flowing through experiences, knowing what's happening in that experience. That's mindfulness. When mindfulness is has a chance to become steady, it allows you to then investigate what's happening. If I'm not present, I can't investigate what's happening. I'm too distracted. I'm not, there's no intimacy. But once you can stabilize intimacy, then you can begin to investigate what's happening and begin to kind of ask questions in the middle of an experience to begin to see how things are working. Where did this come from? How long did it last? Where did it go? What, what really kicked off my anger? Well, I had to be mindful before the anger to see what really kicked it off. It's like, oh, this doubt in myself came and then someone triggered me. Oh, that doubt is a part of how I get triggered. I've never seen that before. But you have to be able to be mindful through the stream of time to really see how things work. So with the rising of mindfulness, stabilizing of mindfulness, you can begin to investigate what's actually happening through the flow of time and see cause and effect. As you see how things work, a conviction arises in you that you don't want to just sort of suffer the consequences of life. You actually want to arouse some effort to begin seeing things more clearly and making better choices and leaving behind the habits that cause suffering. You know, um, if you can renounce the first potato chip, you don't have to eat the whole bag. <laughs> so well-placed effort and courage actually staves off a whole bunch of suffering that comes from that first turn and a habit, but it takes some courage to do that. So with the investigation comes some insight and understanding. Courage comes up to really um, live into that understanding. That brings about this PT, this delight, because you actually start to see how things work. It's all very fascinating. And you get a sense that you can actually make headway in your habits. You're not passively going through life, but you actually are increasing your understanding. With courageous effort, you're making some differences. And it's kind of fascinating to really see how things actually work. From that sense of having explored things, investigated and tried things out, you begin to actually heal your habits and you're not as drawn into exhaustion and fear and agitation, which means you can finally start to actually taste a deeper contentment as you go along. Things are just as interesting, but this sort of well-being starts to arise up from within you and it lends itself to a type of tranquility, a type of calmness that becomes more second nature. So it's interesting, again, that you have a delight and tranquility so close to each other, like you had delight and happiness, piti and sukha. Here you have uh, piti and tranquility. That first piti comes, and then from that, you actually can find, you can settle more than you ever have down into a type of uh, peaceful contentedness. You also need some stability to see things clearly. And so when tranquility begins to come, again, you have a much better capacity to be mindful and investigate what's happening because you're not spinning all the time. 
With the development of this tranquility comes in concentration. Concentration has already been suggested earlier in this sutta, in developing the first 12 of the 16 steps, was developing samadhi, concentration. But from that tranquility, seeing things clearly, you can then begin to really uh, gather your attention and do things with the entirety of your attention versus something scattered or exhausted or fragmented, dispersed. And then the great factor, which takes the longest to develop, is equanimity. In equanimity, you stop chasing and running from experiences, and you're more able to take the seasons as they come and go. And from that, um, you can have a more balanced relationship to the true nature of how life works versus working so hard for specific experiences or running from specific experiences. You kind of just let experiences come and go with, with less reactivity. There's still room for choice, but it's not driven by reactivity, which is a beautiful thing. It's kind of like tranquility, but tranquility is um, an experience of calmness. You can have equanimity in very stimulating experiences, but you're just not drawn for or against the experiences. And you can make your choices from a different place than just this, um, the strong reactivity and strong preferences. That takes a while to develop. But when these seven are working well and playing well together, they tend to allow for a, a true new seeing of how things work. And that tends to ripple through. It, it drives out a sense of confusion. You feel like you're waking up out of a bad dream. And you see things much more clearly. And you can't believe you couldn't have seen it earlier. And it becomes so obvious you think, God, a, a child could see this. I don't know why I was so confused. And when I was, at, um, when I was living as a monk in Burma, there was about a three or four day cycle where I would have an epiphany I think practice so easy a child could do it. I would kind of get a little tired of the epiphany. I go back into confusion, but I was further in than I was before. But then I would balance out again and I would find myself growing. These seven factors would ripen again and there'd be another epiphany. I was like, how could I have not have seen this before? How could I have not seen this? Why do I keep going back into that confusion? but I couldn't necessarily stabilize it. And it took time going through these over and over and over. And then being to see if you actually want for this practice to work more productively, this is an interesting list to work with. A lot of people are not investigating. A lot of people are like, oh, thank God I get to breathe and just sort of turn the world off. Like, oh, this is lovely. But they're not necessarily investigating very much. Mindfulness should engender intimacy, should engender learning. And most of us are so overextended when we sit down and practice, we do go a little bit into, I need rest, I just need rest. But then at some point, invite yourself out of that so you can be learning as you go. Otherwise you will just stay in the same habits. Um, so anyways, this list of the seven factors of awakening, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't get taught much, but you all are experienced students. And so it makes sense to, to talk with you about them. But uh, 
they're a better list than the five hindrances which we work with forever. And like, there's always a hindrance. If you really look, there's always something holding you back. At some point, you just shouldn't be becoming more and more and more interested and familiar with the hindrances. You should recognize as they're, as they're waning, what's really happening, our beautiful qualities are becoming more present. So don't just be hindrance. Um, uh, what's, what's that word? Uh, someone like who's um, hindrance centric. It's like a, someone who savors the hindrances. So I'll, I'll get the word. There's a word that I like. And I'm not getting it. <laughs> but you can actually start to look at. You are more mindful. You are more intimate with your experiences. You are less reactive. Your activity is more productive. You're not just sort of like I just can't take this. I'm like okay, this is unpleasant. I'm going to do something about it. Versus like. I have to do something immediately. I don't care what it is. It has. There's less reactivity. That's more. That's the dawning of, of equanimity, and the, the more more capacity to feel this contentment than uh, than you used to have. It really is growing in all of you, and we see it all the time. Um, these factors are growing, and it's a matter of sort of you can either just let them grow, and the practice will cause them to grow. Or you can begin to see if any one of these is not growing because of the way you're practicing or it might need a little more, more work, a little bit more equanimity, a little bit more tranquility, um, a little bit more delight if your practice has sort of gone into a very tranquil place but you've lost a sense of delight. Then let's see if we can resuscitate that because it's part of how awakening happens. And you take these seven factors of awakening and you plug them right back into the four foundations. And so you go back into the seven factors of awakening. As you go into deeper intimacy with the body, you're able to investigate more what it means to have a body. You go into and you take the seven factors of awakening and you go into Vedana and really watch how pleasure and pain and neutrality is causing your reactivity and causing a lot of your obsessions about the future and the past. You take the seven factors of awakening, you examine the mind, you examine patterns of suffering, patterns of freedom. And the last thing I'll say here is the, um, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is another, is, is sort of the, the sibling sutta, um, also ends with the seven factors of awakening used in studying the four foundations of mindfulness. So because that similar um, construction is at the end of both of these suttas, it's pretty clearly underscored that this is an important part of our development of mindfulness, both mindfulness of the breath and the mindfulness of the four foundations of mindfulness, that we understand the seven factors of awakening. There are talks out there um, on Dharma Seed, this place that has Dharma talks, so People have gone through these seven factors one by one. They've gone through them as a group. But um, as you're experienced students, um, it, and they're pleasant. It's a nice thing to actually develop these and, and see them working in you. And the next time you have an epiphany, you might also like, what's going on? <laughs> Why am I having an epiphany? Oh yeah, there is investigation. There is delight. There is some type of tranquility here. And that's why this is reverberating so deeply in me. Um, I'd like to just see if there are any questions out there, and then let's do um, another sit to kind of let this all metabolize before we uh, separate for the day.
So anybody who hasn't had a chance to ask a question, there's some hands in the back, if we can get the mic back there. Yeah, in the way back there. I have a question you uh, about what you mentioned before uh, an earlier walk where you said um, you can integrate the um, simplicity and, I'm sorry, balance between simplicity and or being in the moment of now. Could you elaborate further? That was in, I tried that and it seemed to be pretty cool. Balance between the simplicity what and, you and the... Well, when we went out on a, a meditation walk earlier, just before that, yeah. You said there were, um, you can vastly go back and forth between, and I don't remember the exact wording of it, but I, the key word I remember on one, one side was simplicity. Yeah. And the other one was being in the moment of now. So when you find yourself not being in one or the other, you go into the other one. Did, <laughs> <laughs> All right, then maybe I, miss, maybe I misheard you. All right. Well, um, what, it's, it's not, unfortunately, it's not triggering memory. So I'm, uh, I'm, well, I'm can you then, waiting for it to trigger up memory. Uh, no problem. Can you then elaborate, um, it, did, did what I say trigger anything in your mind about how to um, go between two different parts or two different ways to stay in mind? Um, um, I, well, the only thing I would say, and it's, it's pretty broad from your question, is um, I often don't find that I stay in one mode when I practice. I have practiced certain modes and then relax out of the practice of those modes and see which one actually is helping me be most intimate. So there are times I go into training mode and I train for something. And in that training, it feels a little bit um, like work. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the most satisfying meditation, but I'm working something to kind of build that capacity. And then at other times I sit and I see what's most useful right now, what's actually arising in me, if I'm trying to gladden myself because that's what I'm supposed to do, but there's grief coming up, it's not a useful, I, mean, I can try a little bit to say like, oh, what's it like to feel grief and see if I can gladden myself? And I might overcome the grief, I might not. So there are times when I'm training in a particular mode, and then times I relax out of those trainings, I do a more organic practice and see what actually, what, what's happening and I might find my mind is going very, very beautifully on its own through a forgiveness cycle. It's like, oh yeah, this is great. Nothing to do with the Nietzsche, but it's great. I'm doing forgiveness. And then I kind of relax back out of that. And then something else comes up. And then maybe it is a Nietzsche. And then it's like, oh, here Nietzsche. So I'm going to lean into that and see, yeah, everything is changing. I'm deepening my intimacy with the Nietzsche. So in that, I often find that I'm going between these different modes and then sometimes I do like particular training, and I feel drawn to it. And then by being drawn to it, I kind of improve my relationship to a particular training. I'm not sure how well that mapped onto your experience. Uh, I got it. That's good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. There's one right here, behind the post. You guys are hidden. <laughs> I, I notice you use the word intimacy a lot. Yeah. So that's new for me. I really like that. And I wonder if you can say something what 
for you the differences between intimacy and immediacy. immediacy. So that's what I usually am familiar with. Intimacy sounds more like you're with a close friend yeah. rather than with a thing. So I, th I think when I first started, mindfulness was analytical because I was just... My, my emotional life and my mindful life were not overlapping that much. And so when I was training in mindfulness, I was training in clarity. Like, uh, I am now breathing in. Yes, I am now breathing out. Yes, I am now breathing in. Nope, I was breathing out when I said that. Like, okay. <laughs> and so I was just trying to get it right. And <clears throat> in hindsight, there was budding intimacy there. But it was mostly about just like, can I tell what's happening? Whereas cuddling up with someone or my dog or anything like that where there's a lot of intimacy, I wouldn't necessarily be studying the moment-to-moment -moment experience of it. I would just be going into the intimacy of it. So often my intimacy wasn't tremendously conscious. And training in consciousness didn't taste like intimacy. But so many factors have now blended loving-kindness practice, patience, uh, faith, um, joy, seeing things clearly, a, a wisdom that kind of just enjoys what it's seeing and keeps sort of getting, like it's seeing things clearly. It's like, oh, I love seeing how things work and that's why that just happened. That's just why all these things have started to integrate so much and the sum total of it feels like a very intimate life. And when I'm driving, it feels much more intimate than it used to. Just the, the vibration of the car and the, the mood I'm in and the people around me, because I'm more present, and not just two-dimensionally present, but textured in my presence with what is happening, my life has a lot more available to it. And that experience is what only used to really arise in a field of intimacy with another being or with myself, in those moments I would feel that type of integration. But I wouldn't necessarily feel that on a mindfulness retreat, but I would feel it after a mindfulness retreat, but I didn't know it well enough to put language to it. And so I do like that word intimacy. And in hindsight, other teachers were using the word intimacy back when I was beginning, but it didn't resonate with me at the time. So I was like, oh, a little bit, a little bit of a hippie teacher somehow. <laughs> they got a lot of heart over there. Oh, it doesn't sound zen. <laughs> it doesn't sound zen. And to my molecular biophysicist, I was like, I don't know about that intimacy thing. It seems to come with a lot of emotion. And I'm not so sure that that's such a good realm because it seems to cause as much as it takes. And I was like, I think I'm going to study this one and get it right. So over time, with the integration, the the word matches the experience. Thank you. Let's come here and there and let's then do a sit. Um, this is not a question, it's more just um, uh, a comment which is, I'm so blown away by how much material you've covered and that I've read about and I've never had it explained as clearly um, or as authentically, um, so that I, I ha I'm like questionless. <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like I'm never going to be able to go to sleep tonight because there's so much to it that's bright and alive and intimate and um, 
places to go with my practice. So thank you so much. Yeah, lovely. Thanks. Very, very happy. This. <clears throat> Um, th thank you very much for that. And <clears throat> what you're feeling in me is my experience and my practice, but also um, people I've been around that I've learned from. And uh, the the person, well, there's so many that come to mind, but um, the gratitude I have for the Burmese teacher, Pao Xayada, for his vastness of like he's the most incredible Porsche mechanic of the body-mind system, um, but he doesn't know how to work on a on a VW. <laughs> and so many of us showed up as VWs, and he had some things to say. But it's only when you could kind of get into like when you're it's like, oh, I think I got a Porsche here that he started to really. But you got to see Theravada as a system of beauty, not a system of suffering. And what I got from other teachers is like, this human mind-body thing, it is just, oh, get out. And, and he still kind of has a get-out model, but the way through is through such incredible healing and beauty. Um, I owe him just so much for what he laid down. And I didn't understand it 15 years ago. Things he taught me are ripening now, but he, he held me to a training that planted things that are ripening now. So I owe him a lot, and I owe Michelle McDonald a lot for her capacity of understanding um, trauma healing and really changing the Burmese model to fit Western psyches and what early teachers had to go through to learn that the hard way and that we are so much wiser than we used to be about waking Westerners up. And we still are teenagers, you know, still, we, we still owe the East a lot, but we're also getting better at it. So, and it is a rich meal. I mean, it's six pages here, but, and I've, we've been galloping, like any one of these realms opens and opens and opens and opens. So it's, a, it's in our tradition, it's a beautiful discourse. Yeah, and then we have one more over here. Yeah, hi. Give the microphone. Okay. Oh, am I too close? Um, hi, my name is Julia, and I um, I just wanted to it's it's sort of exactly comment on something that happened for me today that was completely new for me, um, because in my practice I have I was not really aware of the idea of inviting contentment and inviting gladdening to the process of anapana and. And so I've done metta, but separately. It's always separate. Right. And so today I actually had an experience, because I have many things it's very hard for me to let go of, and I'm great at investigating, and I'm great at going, okay, let that go, or, or shift your focus. But today, because I could invite contentment and inv just purposefully invite gladdening, in that next moment, those things were dissolved that in prior to that had not been able to be dissolved no matter how much laser beam attention or how much how better i got yeah. at being more and more specific about my attention yeah. so it really is kind of blowing me away and i'm yeah. really understanding this larger that description of samadhi 
I'm really going to take, it's just this larger, intimate truth of the universe. So anyway, mm. I'm really having that experience today, so thank you. Beautiful. It's, yeah. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah. So the, the last thing I'll say, and we'll just do a short sit, and this is just as true, is that you go through the sutta and your your knowledge and sophistication and the insights and the development and it all sorts of goes and at some point you just drop it all because it's way too much it's just it, it's interesting and a growth and awakening and kind of and at some point it's just way 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 too much it's not at all where you're at and you come back in and think oh thank god just in and out breathing let's go back and just in and out breathe people and that's like oh thank god and that's what i want to do for you all <laughs> is i actually don't want you to end on this sort of like it's too beautiful and huge that's great but let's just sit for a moment and let it dissipate you know it was here under conditions and coaxed and kind of talked about but we can also give our minds rest and relief from the complications and the sophistications. Let the mind heal and gather and become simple and let the mind settle into the body and build that relationship just through patience and the steady invitation to feel the body, feel the breath, gently dropping in respectfully to this awareness of what it's like to just simply breathe. I invite you to uh, let go of the map and let go of all the possibilities. They'll grow out of intimacy. They don't grow beautifully out of the intellect. They grow out of this intimate connection right down in the body, right down in our breath as a basis. Let's take a few moments and let ourselves simplify and settle in and just appreciate this in and out breathing.
studying the map that we've learned here today could take you further up into complex mental activity. But following the map that's presented here today can take you down into relief and release and a beautiful orientation to living. So relate to the map in its purpose, which is more about what it's like to be simple and present, feeling relief, and be careful about uh, making it too complex. The actual map is pointing to something much more grounded, much more open, much more free. An embodied experience of peace and relief. That's quite noticeable. becomes our default setting to be peaceful and open, embodied, and generous with others and ourselves, caring. May our time together today continue to affect you and inspire you and may it ripple out to touch many people that you interact with through the many days, weeks, and months, and years of your life as you continue to practice. And may it touch people in ways that you don't even know. The smile that you give to someone else that someone else sees the patience you exude, never mind somebody else to be patient. Having clarity where many people are confused and helping other people see that clarity, understand it for themselves. May many be touched by the efforts you put into your practice.